at church. How are we doing? All right. It's good to see you. Happy Mother's Day. It's pouring rain. I hope you have indoor plants. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've not yet had a chance to meet, I just want to welcome you. Say how glad I am to have this opportunity today to open the scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 10, and just a little bit of a, uh, I don't know what the right word is, a little bit of a milestone. This is the 30th sermon that we have done in the book of Hebrews, and uh, almost halfway, no, I'm just kidding, we're, we're over halfway uh, through this series. We'll be uh, taking a couple little breaks as we go and finishing up uh, sometime at the end of summer, early into the fall. We're going to tackle 18 verses today. It's a lot, uh, but we're not going to extendedly look at all 18 verses. We're going to focus on verses 13 and 14, and I'll explain more about that in a minute. But before we do anything, let's read this passage. I'll pray, and then we'll spend some time getting to work. Read with me if you would. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church family. Father God, we come together today, as always, thankful for your word. God, thankful that your word is given to us to instruct us and teach us and shape us and transform us. And God, I do pray that today as we dive into this passage of scripture, I pray that it would not just be mere information for us, but that, God, you would do the, the work of change that you want to do in our lives. God, as we look at some of the, the biggest, most foundational concepts in all of the Christian faith, God, I pray you help me to teach 
only that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray that you give all of us soft and receptive hearts that we might worship Jesus more. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, one of my favorite things about the book of Hebrews is how the author of Hebrews will at times basically emphasize these things that are their tensions. They're held in tension together uh, without really trying to resolve it one way or another. Uh, just an example, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus in some of the highest and loftiest language in the entire Bible, that, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. But then it also describes Jesus in some of the lowest and most humble and most relatable language. It talks about how Jesus has suffered when tempted. He's been tried and tested and tempted in every way as we are. And so somebody could say to the author of Hebrews, well, which is it? Is Jesus high and exalted or is he low and humble? And the author of Hebrews would say, yep. It's kind of a both and situation. He's not trying to resolve it one way or the other. I like that throughout the book of Hebrews. One of the things that we're going to look at today, really the big idea that we're going to look at today, is one of the biggest tensions that you and I experience as Christians. And it's this. If you are a Christian, you are perfect in the sight of God. And if you are a Christian, you're not yet perfect in practical day-to-day -day experience. If you are a Christian, you have been justified, you have been made righteous, and God treats you as though you were as perfect as Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you will start to notice each and every day how unlike Jesus you really are. Do I get an amen from any of these spouses today, right? So this, that's, the, that's the tension, that's the big idea. Like I said, we're going to tackle all 18, the first 18 verses of chapter 10. But what the author of Hebrews is doing, he's really recapping a bunch of things that we've already looked at. We've talked about Jesus the high priest. We've talked about Jesus once and for all sacrifice. We've talked about the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews is really bringing it all together. So what I want to do is I want to read through these verses again, draw out just a couple of things, and then I want to really focus in on verses 13 and 14. So let's go back to verse 1. Let's just, let's just talk through these verses briefly. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the law, the Old Testament, the first half or, or more than half, really, of the Bible, is a good thing. It's a good gift from God. And the law that God gave to Moses was a gift of his grace and mercy, but the author of Hebrews says it was a shadow. It was a signpost. It was pointing forward to something. It was incomplete. It couldn't get us to the destination, the goal of perfection. And so these, these sacrifices are offered every year, but they can't make anybody perfect. They just suspend judgment and offer temporary forgiveness. Verse 2, otherwise, would they, these, these sacrifices, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Think about the, the actually the just kind of the sadness of that. We, we keep having to offer these sacrifices every year. Why? Because we keep blowing it. We keep sinning. There's more sin that we have to have sacrifices for. It's, it's a little bit depressing. Every year, year after year, we come back on the Day of Atonement. We offer these sacrifices. The high priest goes and offers a sacrifice, but it's just really a reminder 
of the fact that we still haven't arrived, we haven't achieved perfection. It's almost kind of like, maybe think of a, of a person who's waiting for an organ transplant. And they're waiting, but they have to wait for a lengthy period of time. And all the while, every single day, they have to take all these pills, take all these medications every day. Yeah, the pills help. They're good. They, they maybe make some of the symptoms go away or they alleviate some of the pain. But every day as you take those pills, it's just a reminder. What I really need is an organ transplant. Right. What I really need is a, is a full donation of, of somebody for a heart transplant or whatever it might be. It's kind of like that. And it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, consequently... When Christ came into the world, he said, time out. This is interesting. It's not a major point, but it's interesting. The author of Hebrews is about to quote from Psalm 40. But he says that it's Christ saying it. In case you uh, forgot or didn't realize, Psalms are written maybe a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. But the author of Hebrews is basically saying Jesus is God. And he spoke these words of the psalm. The Bible doesn't ever say Jesus is God in really flat, blunt language like that. But there are claims of Jesus' divinity all over the place. Sometimes I hear skeptics say, the Bible never says Jesus is God. Yeah, it does, right there. When Christ came into the world, he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Oh, I'm sorry, look at the wrong one. Uh, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now the author of Hebrews is going to explain what that psalm is meaning, how it's fulfilled in Jesus. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. But what he's saying is this. He's saying God's not ultimately interested in dead animals. God's not interested in sacrifices that just cover over sins. He's interested in someone actually obeying him and, and doing his will. And what's so great is that God has provided in his son Jesus a perfect human being who actually did the will of God perfectly. That's better than a sacrifice for those who have broken God's law. Amen? That's, that's the argument he's making. It's, it's, sacrifices are, are one thing. That's not ultimately what God wants. What God wants is someone to do his will. Jesus has now done it. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Does it sound like the author of Hebrews is repeating himself? Because he is. These offerings, these sacrifices, they can never take away sin. You have to remember this first audience that it was written to would have been Jewish Christians who were facing persecution. And all of a sudden this following Jesus thing is a lot harder than they thought it was going to be. And so they're tempted to run back to the temple sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews said, don't do it. Don't go backwards. Jesus is so much better. He's, he's bringing all of these themes really to uh, kind of the climax and the conclusion here. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. That means his job was done. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's the passage. Those are the verses we're going to come back to in just a minute and expound on even more. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Friends, if you are a Christian, God is not holding your sin against you. He is not remembering your sins. Is that good news to anyone today? Yes. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of his death, we can confidently say that my sins have been dealt with once and for all, and I can stand before God clean, forgiven, loved, justified. That is incredibly good news. Amen. That's better than sacrifices. That's better than an annual reminder of sin. Jesus has died once and for all, and if you're a Christian, there's no more need for sacrifice. It's all been done. In the person and work of Jesus. Now, I said I want to go back to, to verses 13 and 14 and focus in on them. And we're going to see a couple of things here. We're going to explore this tension between progress and perfection. Between our status as perfect, perfect in Jesus and our practical reality of needing to grow and to change. And we're going to really see a couple of things. Number one, we're going to see the goal of where the world is headed. Number two, we're going to see the goal of where our lives individually are headed. And number three, we're going to look at the growth process and how God does this work in us. So, go back to verse 13. It says this, that, that Jesus is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Okay, what, what, is, what does a footstool imply? What, what is this? Is this are we furniture shopping with Jesus? What are we talking about here? His enemies shall be made a footstool. Okay, enemies. There's warfare. There's combat. There's, there's two sides here. This is kind of like in our culture when we say, maybe in a, in a football game, that you know the team just ran and trampled all over the other team, right? They're, they're under your feet. What this is saying is that there are enemies of God, but one day they're all going to be underneath the feet of Jesus. That Jesus will rule and reign over any opposition, any one that has stood up against him. One day, he's, he's going to rule and reign, but we're waiting. Jesus is waiting, and we're waiting. Let me just talk you through briefly uh, just this idea of God's rulership over the world and, and just kind of tell you the biblical story. That The starting point is, is quite simple. God is in charge of the whole universe. So again, they meant from anybody on that one. God's, God's in charge of it all. The, the psalm, Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means everything that it's full of belongs to God and not to you and not to me. So the earth is the Lord's. But there's a problem and that's mankind's rebellion. It, our rebellion against God was basically mankind saying, God, we don't want you to be in charge. We want to be in charge. We want to live life on our own terms. We want rulership and authority. And there's a sense in which every time we sin, we're saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't believe your ways are best, and I actually think I should be the one in charge. The Bible tells us in places like Romans 5, that's why there's so much chaos. That's why there's so much destruction. That's why there's death in the world. How many of you know there are some things wrong with the world? 
You don't have to be a sociologist or a, you know, a news reporter to know that things are messed up. And it's due to our rebellion against God. But the good news is that God sent Jesus. So Jesus has now come into the world, and through his death, he has been crowned the rightful ruler over all mankind. We looked at this earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews 2.9, that Jesus is crowned, crowned. He's a king. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. His crown was a crown of thorns. And his enthronement, uh, enthronement ceremony was being lifted up in front of people on a cross. But through that death, he has conquered over Satan and conquered over the forces of evil. He's proven that he is the rightful king of the universe. Then Jesus ascended to heaven. And point number four is this. We're waiting for his return. One day Jesus is going to return. And all things will be brought fully under his rule and under his reign. There's a, there's a verse in Revelation 11. Uh, it's 11.15. I think that's a typo on the screen there. But it talks about how this angel blows a trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Think about that. Think about a day when we are not ruled by politicians, we are ruled by Jesus. Does that sound exciting to anybody this morning, where it's not the Democrat Party and the Republican Party and the Socialist Party and the Tea Party, it's just the Jesus Party. And I mean that in all the senses of the word because we will party with Jesus for all of eternity. How good is that news? But we're waiting. Ephesians 1 actually says that God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and earth united in Christ Jesus. All things. But the problem is we're living in this age, this is my fifth point, we're living in this current age of overlaps of tension. Jesus has already come. He's already established the kingdom. But we have not yet seen his return. We don't yet see it in its totality. How many of you have seen good things of the kingdom of God? How many of you have seen you know, relationships be restored? Or you've seen people acting in justice and truth and mercy? And how many of you have seen people write a check to cover the bills of someone that they didn't even know just because Jesus had led them to do so? You guys seen good things like that? That's evidences of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. How many of you still, though, have seen racism or sexism or, or violence or hatred or Resentment or unforgiveness. How many of you know there's still much that's wrong with the world? There's much that's wrong with us. That's the not yet. We're living in this age of, of tension and overlap where Jesus has come. He has established the kingdom, but we've not yet seen it come in totality. We're waiting. We're waiting for him to return. So this is the goal of the world. This is where we're headed. This is what it means when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is waiting from that time until he shall make all of his enemies a footstool under his feet. Friends, make no mistake. God is leading the entire course of human history towards his desired outcome. And no matter what happens in American politics, no matter what happens in global politics, the plans of God will not be thwarted. Can't, can't thwart God's sovereign plan. Amen? That's good news for all of us. Now, verse 14, how do we fit into that? That's the goal of the whole world. How do we fit into that? 
Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let's, let's just talk about the word perfected for a brief moment. How many of you know that God's goal for your life is total and complete perfection? God's goal for your life is total and complete perfection. Can you imagine that? Whatever vices plague you in a short temper, you fear and cowardice and challenged, lustful eyes, you, you retreat in fear when, when maybe you see other sins, you cover up your brokenness, whatever it is. Could you imagine being free from the weight of all that, 100% free from the weight of all that? Could you imagine living with your spouse if they were perfected? Your roommates? Your, the people in your class? The, your office mates? The people you share an office with? Wow, what if they were perfected? Your kids? Some of your moms? My kids, they're perfected. Wow. That's God's goal for us. God's goal for us as individuals is nothing short of 100% complete perfection. This is Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So don't get, don't get discouraged. God's working on you. And by the way, I should say this. When, when I say that God's goal for you is complete perfection, it's not like our goals, right? Anybody ever set a goal like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds, then you like, oh, but there's a cheesecake. And then you're just, you don't lose 10 pounds, right? We have these goals. Sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. When God has a goal, it's not like, a, oh, I hope this happens. When God sets a goal, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. God's word does not return back to him void. God's word accomplishes what it, set out, what it sets out to accomplish. Amen? That's right. So, you can bank on that. Second thing I want you to see, though, is God's goal is not just for you individually. It's for his church to reach full perfection. Ephesians 5.27, this, this verse where it talks about husbands, you should love your wives like Christ loves the church. And it says that, that one day Christ is going to present this church to himself in splendor. That's a, that's a word we don't use enough in our day. Splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, raise your hand if you really don't like doing laundry. Raise your hand. Do some of you like doing laundry? You, oh, weird, weird people. I'll pray for your soul. That's strange. Uh, I don't like doing laundry, and, and, and I uh, graciously, my wife tackles most of it, but every once in a while I end up doing some laundry. And here, there's something that happens, right, where you, you get laundry out of the, what, what's it called? Oh, the dryer. I don't spend a lot of time with that. <laughs> you get laundry out of the dryer, and you're like, oh, it's clean. But then you look, and there's like a grease stain that didn't get sprayed with that special stain. You, like, you look at the clothes, like, well, this is basically useless. You throw it behind the couch, right? Anybody ever have that experience? Or, or like, you wash your favorite shirt, and you're so excited to wear your favorite shirt, you get it out of the dryer, and you're like, it is so wrinkly. I'm never going to iron that and just throw it in the garbage, right? Like, anybody ever have that experience? <laughs> It's so frustrating when, you, when you've got a piece of clothing, but it's stained or it's wrinkled or something, right? Think about this. That, that imagery of clothing says that, that Jesus is going to present his church, his bride, free from any spots, free from any wrinkles, free from any blemishes, radiant, dazzling, in splendor. I, I don't know if you know this. Sometimes churches have drama. And problems and issues and conflict. I've, I've heard of things like that happening. Never in our perfect church. I'm just joking for you who are visiting. 
conflict and drama. We know your community groups. Anybody ever had conflict in your community group? Anybody ever had conflict in your homes? The, the church doesn't look like that yet, does it? Free from spot or, or wrinkle or blemish or stain. But do you trust God that one day his church will look that radiant, that dazzling, that beautiful? Could you imagine your community group free from that type of conflict? Could you imagine not just our church, not just Central City Bible Church, but literally every church that calls upon the name of Jesus being united together in perfection? What a glorious day that will be. And that's God's goal for his church. And, and then I want to remind you, point number three is this. Your perfection and the church's perfection are part of his larger goal to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus. When I talk about your life getting better, when I talk about you being changed and sanctified to look more like Jesus, please don't think that your growth and your transformation and your change is all about you. It's not. It's about God shaping you and changing you as he brings the entirety of the universe under the rulership of Jesus. We're too, we're, we settle for too little, and we're too prone to make it be about us. Friends, it's not about us. It's about God ruling and reigning over everything, and for us to be made perfect, and for our church to be made perfect, and for all those things to happen, excuse me, at the end of the age, is about Jesus, and his love, and his grace, and his mercy, and his authority, and it's never, ever about us. Now, I want to talk for a minute a little bit more about this word perfection, though, because there's something happening here. In verse 14, it says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We'll look at that in a minute. But let's just, just look at that phrase. He has perfected for all time. Okay. How many of you walk in here this morning and you think, you know, I have been perfected for all time. I am as awesome as I could be. How, how many of you, I mean, you have to be profound narcissist or delusional to, to really kind of come in with that mindset. I think for, for most all of us, wouldn't you agree, our experience is that there's a lot that is wrong with me. There's a lot that needs to change about me. How is it that the author of Hebrews can with a straight face say, you all have been perfected for all time? Let's just, let's just try this. I'm, going, I'm, I'm asking you to do something that's going to feel a little bit weird. I want you to say the words. I have been made perfect. Ready? One, two, three. I have been made perfect. Does that feel strange? I mean, we, we have a mantra in our culture, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But right here, the Word of God says that you have been made perfect. The author of Hebrews doesn't use this word. The, the Apostle Paul uses this word a lot. But what this is, is this is the Christian doctrine of justification. Justification. This is like Christianity meat and potatoes. This is uh, so absolutely foundational to our faith. Justification is, is basically the, the bedrock. It's the ground from where everything else in the Christian faith grows from. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said it's the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. And without the doctrine of justification, the church cannot exist for one hour. So Martin Luther said. So what is justification? What is justification? How do we define it? The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this comes out of, of England in the, the 1600s, 
And this is how a, a wonderful group of, of godly uh, men and women define justification. They say this, justification is an act of God's free grace by which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Side note, this is a catechism, which means it's a series of questions and answers that are supposed to be memorized. And we're not particularly diligent in our culture of doing question and answer memorization and catechism. I wish we were. But I'll tell you, there's a, there's a series of albums that have been put out. Uh, I can't remember the singer's name, Dana Dirks, I think it is. And they do Westminster Catechism kid songs. And so if you ask my kids, we've listened to it, my kids could actually say that back to you because they've heard just this terrible earworm song where they sing justification is you know, the, the act of God's free grace. They can actually sing it back. So that's a side point. If any of you want to get catechized and also get really annoyed by cheesy kids songs, you can look those up. We'll try to post them up on the internet as well. But this is, this is an astounding definition. Let's just talk about this for a moment. Justification. First thing we need to see, it's the forgiveness of our sins. But, but it's not just forgiveness of sins. Because God could just forgive us of our sins and then say, all right, well, now you're back to, to zero. You were at negative 100, now you're just at zero. But no, instead of saying you're at negative 100, I'm going to take you to zero. So I'm going to take you from negative 100. I'm going to take you to positive 1,000 because I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ. Friends, Jesus lived a perfect life. He did the will of God perfectly. He always said yes to God's will. He always said no to sin and rebellion. And God is saying, I am willing to treat you, 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 you fallen, broken human beings. I'm willing to treat you as though you were as perfect as Jesus Christ himself. Is that good news to anyone? It's not just that God forgives us of our sins and puts us back to neutral. It's that he imputes or gifts the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. And so when God, your Father, looks at you, he looks at you with all of the love and the affection that he has for his one and only son, Jesus. And it's, it's really important to note that this is only by God's grace alone and it's only received through faith alone. It is not anything that we have done the only thing that we contribute to our justification is the mess that made it necessary in the first place. Right. It's 100% the work of Jesus. 100% his perfection. This is really important. This is really important because it means it's unshakable. It means it's unchangeable. It means tomorrow... When you mess up and you fall into that sin that you've stumbled in a thousand times before, you're just sick of it, I can't believe I did that again, you can know with confidence that God's heart towards you is one of love and invitation and grace and mercy because he didn't love you on the basis of your works, he loved you on the basis of Christ's perfect work. Right, that's right. Man, this is good news. Justification is such incredibly good news. If you are a Christian, you have been justified. You've been made righteous. And in the Greek, those two, it's the same word. Made right. Made just. Uh, you think about how we use it in the English language. You know, If you have a document that's left justified, it means things line up. Everything's in order. If you're a Christian, everything's in order. I have been made perfect. I have been justified by God's grace and mercy. Now, here comes the tension. Let's look back at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has 
perfected for all time those who are being, what's the word, Sound City? Sanctified. sanctified. Being sanctified. Uh, I don't know if any of you are, are grammar nerds, but I looked it up in the Greek, and it's a present, ongoing, passive participle. And I got a big amen from Pastor Shane in the first service on that one, but I only share that with you because it means a couple things. It's present or ongoing tense, which means it's, it's, going, it's ongoing. It's, it's, it's no definition to when the action stops. It just is happening all the time. And it's passive, which means you're not the one doing it. You're being acted upon. God is sanctifying you. He is shaping you. He's changing you. He's working on you. Sanctified. That's another big word. We, have, we hit justified. We're hitting sanctified. It's like meat and potatoes for Christians. I don't care, by the way, how long you've been a Christian. You need to hear these doctrines preached to you over and over and over again. Why? Because of our sinful tendency towards religion, trying to prove ourselves to God. Let me walk you through this and show you what I mean. The, the Bible uses the word sanctified in a couple of different senses. One way that the Bible uses the word sanctified is, is, is it means set apart. It means you've got this, this big collection of things. I'm going to set something apart. It's going to be special. It's going to be special. It's going to be for holy use. It's going to be for a particular special use. right? You, uh, some of you, you know, you, you men, you've you got your garage. You have a whole garage full of tools. You go out, and you're like, you know, I've got several different saws or several different wrenches, but here's the one that I really like the most. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or some of you ladies, you know, if it's, if it's maybe it's the kitchen. That's really gender stereotypical. Maybe you women have a garage full of tools. Maybe some of you men have your favorite knives in the kitchen. You're right, Pastor Joe? You know, it's your favorite, your favorite kitchen tools, huh? Whatever it might be, you go and you've got all these different knives, all these tools. But this is the one that I really love. This is the one that I'm setting apart for special use. It's kind of like that with God. Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes that, that, that God has set us apart that we would be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So that's one way that the Bible talks about sanctification. Another way that the Bible talks about sanctification is the progressive work of God in the lives of Christians as he transforms us to look more like Jesus. So, so it's kind of like, it'd be kind of like this. Let's say you go out to the garage, you've got your, your one special tool that you really want to use, but it's fallen into disrepair over the winter. You know, you haven't used it in months, and maybe it's got some moisture, it's rusted up. You just can't, you can't use it. You really want to use it, but you just can't use it in the shape that it's in. And so you start cleaning it up, and you apply some WD-40, and you, you polish it, and you sand off the rust. Whatever you've got to do to get this, this implement, this vessel, this tool ready for use. It's kind of like that with God and us. God wants to use us. God wants to use us for his purposes. God wants to use us for his holy purposes, but he has to apply some spiritual WD-40 to us to clean us up and make us fit for use. Does that analogy work? I think it works. I'm going to stick with it either way because it's not already said it. But the Bible talks about us, us being sanctified, being changed. Like in 1 Thessalonians 5, it talks about may the God of peace sanctify you completely, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's both being set apart and it's being transformed for better use by God. And I would say that the author of Hebrews, again, in the tension, is using this word kind of in both senses. We've been set apart for use by God, and he's cleaning us up. He's working on us. He's transforming us. I want to say a couple of other things about sanctification. This is number three. I want to say this. Sanctification is based on justification. Never, never, never 
the other way around. Religion, if I, if I use that word in the pejorative sense, religion says you need to get good enough and then God will love you. What the gospel says is you were not good enough and so God loves you and is now transforming you so that one day you'll look like Jesus. We never want to get that backwards. If you remember nothing else that I say this morning, please remember that your sanctification is based on your justification, never the other way around. And watch out in your own heart for that sinful tendency to get it reversed. God, I've, I've sinned, I've messed up, I, you probably don't love me as much today as you did yesterday. Nonsense! God's love for you. Think about this. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all time. When, when Jesus died on the cross, he knew every sin that you were ever going to commit. And he willingly let his body be drained of its blood so that you could be justified before God in heaven. And the last thing I want to say about sanctification is this. Our sanctification is directly linked to our joy in Christ. Think about this. As God changes you, as you, as you begin to obey him more, as you begin to say no to sin more, and yes to righteousness more, does God want begrudging, feet-dragging, if-I-have-to obedience? Does that bring him much glory at all? For those of you who are parents, and you've ever experienced that from your kids, go, hey, will you go clean up the, di you know, the dinner table? <sighs> I mean, does that just, you know, mom's word, does that just fill your heart with joy and delight? I'm so happy right now. Our Heavenly Father is a God of joy. Our God is a God of joy. God's way happier than any of us. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. God, it says that God dances and rejoices over his, his people with loud singing. Do you guys think of God as being joyful? Do you, do you, do you think of him as being joyful enough? Probably not. But here's, here's the truth. Your sanctification, your growth in godliness is directly linked to joy. God is not interested in your begrudging obedience. He wants you to have joy overflowing. And it works both ways. The more joy that you have in Christ, the more that you delight in Him, the more you're going to want to be like Him. And the more that you are like Him, the more you're going to experience His joy. It's like a wonderful feedback loop where one builds upon the other. Friends, please don't walk out of here thinking like, well, i got to do better this week. Think, i got to delight in Jesus more this week. i got to enjoy the gospel more this week. I need to see the joy of God more this week because that is where your growth and your transformation will truly take place. Let me read you this quote from Dr. Ligon Duncan. He's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. I love how he says this. He says this, Satan argued that freedom and blessedness would only be found in rebellion. But Adam and Eve soon discovered the bitter truth. Sin did not bring freedom and blessing, but the opposite, bondage and curse. The only place freedom and blessedness can be enjoyed is in the sphere of obedience to God, who is blessedness and peace in and of himself. Does that sound countercultural to any of you? Yes. Our culture that preaches the gospel of your, your joy and your happiness is only found in self-fulfillment and just doing whatever you want? Right. God's word says that joy and fulfillment is found in doing what God wants. And this is precisely what 
that progressive sanctification is meant to do, darn PhDs with their big words, increase our present enjoyment of God's peace and blessedness. Sanctification is for your joy. Your total well-being, your happiness, your satisfaction is inextricably connected to sanctification. And that's why the God of total well-being is irreversibly and indefatigably, there's a $10 word for you, committed to your sanctification. He's never going to get tired of working on you. Because he wants your total well-being, happiness, and sanctification. Friends, I want you to have joy. I want to have more joy, and I want you to have more joy. God wants us to have more joy, and it's found in closeness to him. Now let me just close with two, I'm going to call them encouragements, but they're also cautions. Two things to just watch out for in this, in this conversation about progress and perfection, justification and sanctification. My first encouragement for you is this. Have patience. Have patience. How many of you know, sometimes change comes slowly. How many of you know, things go slower than sometimes we want it to go? Have you read the Bible and seen just how many agricultural metaphors that God uses in his word? Any of you here grow a garden? Never grown, anybody ever grown a tree from like a seedling all the way up to a food-producing tree? I have not. I don't have the patience for it. But I hear that it would take a long time <laughs> for it to actually become a mature fruit-producing tree. Think about this. God's more patient than we are sometimes. Now let me change that. God's more patient than we are all the time. Amen? I want change. I want it now. And that's both for yourself and for the lives of others. We're impatient not only with ourselves to grow what we want, but sometimes we're really impatient with others. You're, you're impatient with your members of your community group. You're impatient you know, with your parents, with your kids. Why don't they just get it already? God's growing us. God's changing us. God's shaping us. And it's going to take time. But the second encouragement or, or kind of challenging and warning I would say for you is this. Don't use the idea of sanctification to justify or minimize or make excuses for your sin. Oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect. I'm just a work in progress, so it's okay that I did X, Y, or Z. No. When God, in his grace, shows you areas of remaining sin in your life, your job, your role, your call, is to put that sin to death by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I think about sometimes, with, even with my own children, you know, I'll go to one of them and I'll say, hey, you know, why are you tying up your sister with a garden hose or whatever they're doing, right? It's <laughs> just the most recent example that came to mind. <laughs> and, 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 and I think about how many times my kids will say something like, well, I was just, let's pause right there. I was just. I was okay. I was right. Here's why it's okay for me to tie up my sister with a garden hose, right? How many times do we say, well, I was just, I was only, it was just, I, I hope to actually ruin that word for you going forward. Because every time an excuse comes up, you don't need to say, I was just. You don't need to justify yourself before God. If you're a Christian, you're already justified. Say, yep, that was sin. I blew it. Name it, confess it, expose it to the light. Weep if you need to weep. And then rejoice that God loves you based on Christ's works and not your own. Don't make excuses, don't minimize, don't justify. You're free in Christ to repent wildly. And let that lead to greater joy for you as well. Amen? 
And this is, this is such good stuff because it's just gospel basics. It's, I, I wish there was another service coming up so I could preach it again. I'm ministering to my own soul in this. There's so much joy to be had in knowing, A, you're justified, accepted, loved before God, and that you're a work in progress. And he is faithful to get you to the final goal of perfection. And he is faithful to bring the entire world to its final goal of perfection. One day Christ will return and all will be under the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. Amen? Amen. What a day that will be. And in the meantime, we celebrate and we rejoice in our God here and now. And it's in line with that that I want to call us to a time of response. And we're going to respond as we do in a couple of ways. We're going to start with responding with giving. And uh, we're still kind of figuring things out in this new room a little bit. And so I think this week the offering uh, servers are going to come and start the collection from the back of the room. And so just be aware there might be a bucket being passed forward to you, especially if you're sitting at the end of the rows. So uh, just heads up, help us out with that. Also, as, as far as giving goes, I just want to remind you, we don't encourage you to give as worship. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, there's no obligation for you to give, but we encourage you to do what it talks about in the Bible, just to give as God will lead you to support the work of the ministry here. Uh, if you need an envelope for giving, those are out of the connect desk. and encourage you to grab those on your way into the service. Or you can give online with the text to give the numbers there on the screen. And while they're collecting, let me go over some discussion questions this week for our community groups in our homes. Number one, how can we as disciples help one another pursue growth and change even though we know perfection will only come in eternity? How can we joyfully persevere and avoid discouragement? Number two, I want to encourage you, in your group, take some time to encourage one another. Share with others ways that you've seen God shaping and growing. And you're like, hey, Bob, you're way less of a jerk than you used to be. It's awesome, right? Like, I don't really mean like that, but let's encourage each other and then share ways that God is shaping and growing you. Number three, our, one of our values as a church, we actually said one of our values as a church is that when it comes to how we relate to each other, we value progress, not perfection. And so how can we help each other avoid the trap of perfectionism without minimizing or making excuses for our sin? Let me just mention, too, as the, as the communion uh, servers are passing out the elements, hold on to those. We're going to take this together in just a minute. Uh, God's ultimate goal is not just to transform us as individuals, but for the whole world to be redeemed and restored. How does that truth challenge, encourage, and guide you as you follow Jesus? And then a couple things to pray about. Pray that we, as disciples of Jesus, would grow to look more like him. Number two, pray that we would be secure in our justification as we live out our sanctification. And then number three, pray that God would show our non-Christian friends and family that they can be saved on the basis of Jesus' work and not their own. How many of you know friends and family who are not Christians who think it's all up to them to live a good life and be acceptable to God on that, on that basis? And I just want to encourage you to pray for them. As they're passing out the communion elements, we're going to take a moment together, and in just a minute I'll pray, and then I'll invite you to eat and drink of the cup and of the bread uh, as we begin our time of singing. But, but first, let me just read this passage from 1 Corinthians and remind you what this is about. This is the Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup 
of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself, then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Today, as we eat of this bread and drink of the cup, let's be reminded of the fact that it's in the death of Jesus that we're justified. His work is finished. It's finished. It's finished. And let's be reminded that in his death, in his broken body and shed blood, that we find our transformation, our sanctification. I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray. And I'll invite you just to maybe even hold quietly for a minute when I'm done praying. The band will begin to play and begin to lead us in song. And then I encourage you, if you want to pray with your spouse or with a friend or with someone, if you want to just pray silently and, and, and take the elements when you're ready. And then after you've taken the elements, I invite you to stand and, and join with us in song. But let me just pray for us right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been justified in Christ Jesus. That your love for us is not based on our works, but on Christ's perfect work. And today, God, as we take of this bread and drink of this cup, I pray that it would help us to examine ourselves. God, see if there's anything in us that needs to be repented of, that needs to be changed. And that, God, you would encourage us to repent wildly, as it were, Lord God. And that we would freely come before you. No excuses, no minimizing, no justifications, but just receiving your grace anew, God. Receiving of your mercy anew. God, would you fill our lips with your praises today as we sing these songs to you. We pray with all be for Jesus' glory. Amen.